welcome to The Readings Podcast, a production by Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings Books and Music. We were honoured to host an event at the Church of All Nations Carlton and welcome Mary Crooks, Executive Director of the Victorian Women's Trust, to chair a conversation with the authors of The Voice to Parliament Handbook, Thomas Mayo and Kerry O'Brien. The Voice to Parliament Handbook is an easy-to-follow guide for the millions of Australians who have expressed support for the earlier statement from the heart, but want to better understand what a voice to parliament actually means. Thomas Mayo is a Torres Strait Islander man from Larrakia country in Darwin. He's one of the leading figures in garnering support for a constitutionally enshrined First Nations voice to parliament and a Makarata Commission for truth-telling, agreement-making and treaties. And he is, of course, the bearer of the Uluru Statement from the heart. Kerry O'Brien is an award-winning journalist and author of Four Corners, 7.30 and Late Line fame and a former press secretary to Gough Whitlam, and also a former chair of the Walkley Foundation. I hope you enjoy this illuminating conversation, and stick to the end for something special. Here's Mary Cooks. Thank you, Nico. So welcome to all, and I'd like to begin by acknowledging country. We're on Wurundjeri land here tonight, land of the Kulin Nation. As a kid, I grew up in southwestern Victoria, in Hayward and Portland, which was Gundajamara country. So it's a great development in my lifetime that we have grown to accustomed and expecting to offer genuine acknowledgement of country. And I pay my respects to elders past and present, but I also think that one of the best ways that we could in fact show that respect in 2023 is to bring the referendum home. So we've, we've got a great opportunity here with Thomas and Kerry. There have been many people on the wait list for this event. There are many people around country Victoria who would have ached to be here. And there will be many people who have been able to hear Thomas and Kerry in their roadshow to launch the book who were not able to get to the events. So I'd like to start by paying tribute to the immense leadership of Thomas, uh, not just over the last six years, but before that and his role uh, in the Constitutional Convention that led to the Uluru Statement and to the community leadership of Kerry, Kerry O'Brien. The campaign is just fundamentally tied around your capacity to support the way you are. But I'd also, not surprisingly, I guess as a feminist and wanting to see women acknowledged, I really want to also pay tribute to the immense leadership of Marcia Langton to Megan Davies and and to Pat Anderson uh, and the whole lot of younger generation Indigenous female leaders, Sally Scales, it's too many to mention. But I think I'm in awe, constant awe of what Megan and Pat achieved as well in the lead up to Uluru and we owe them a huge debt. Let's start with a reflection on the process leading to the first Indigenous constitutional convention and ultimately to the Statement of the Heart. I'm going to ask Thomas to open by talking about the process that led up to it because a few people, a few voices around the nation are demeaning it and calling its integrity into question, which is completely baseless, but we know that's the kind of thing that's happening. So Thomas, let's start with some reflections on the process itself. 
Yeah, thank you, Mary. Uh, acknowledge country as well, Wurundjeri people and elders past and present. The process behind this, I mean, it, what the No campaign are saying is that this is a uh, Canberra voice, that this is something that is an ALP idea, an Albanese idea, which is completely false. And that is because of the process that led to the making of the Uluru Statement from the Heart that has the key claim, the key proposal, for a constitutionally enshrined voice. The process was regional dialogues that covered the entire continent and adjacent islands. They were three days each. They were well informed. There was an intense lesson on civics for the participants. There was 100 participants at each, not to exclude anybody, but to ensure that there was a cross-section of views and perspectives and types of advocates in the room. So not just the loudest advocates were learnt, but the quieter advocates that do the front lines work in healing and and those types of things. There was accurate record of meeting endorsed at the end of that three days and the dialogue selected delegates to go to a culminating convention in the heart of the nation at Uluru. And that was three more days of passionate debate and discussion. And we reached a consensus on the final morning at Uluru and that is the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And so that process was a looking back at our history to understand the, the, the struggles and the things that had worked, the things that had failed, the promises made, the promises broken, the, the numerous other committees that were established that had looked into this, and understanding all of that and the politics behind it sensibly and logically proposes that the voice is constitutionally enshrined. And that is because every other time that we have established a voice, it has been silenced by governments that come along that are hostile and that don't want to be held to account for the decisions in Indigenous affairs. And as we know, in the absence of Indigenous people providing those solutions and being in the decision-making about our lives, those decisions that are made without us fail. And that's where it comes from. Kerry, you and Thomas have teamed up. You've joined forces to produce this handbook. I know that it's been done in an incredible period of time. I think people do like to know a little bit before we get into the substance, but just the process of the two of you working together on this? Well, uh, Thomas and I had come to know each other somewhat because uh, when he brought his first book out on the journey to Uluru, I interviewed him. We ran a conversation in Byron Bay run by the local bookshop. We then uh, found ourselves sharing a stage with NITV and SBS on a January 26 program a sunrise program. A real sunrise, that is, not the television one. <laughs> and then uh, when Thomas brought out another of his many books, <laughs> we talked again. And then out of the blue, he rang me in early November last year and told me what he had in mind as a handbook, told me why he thought it was important. He didn't have to speak for too long. I needed a little bit of time to think it through because I was about to engage in another project and wasn't sure that it was going to happen. 24 hours later, I was able to ring him back and say yes. But uh, it was at that point that we got to the reality edge. Even though it was only going to be around 100 pages, uh, 20,000 words in the end, we were going to have to get through this. And, and uh, Thomas had given it some thought, obviously, because it had been boiling away in the back of his mind for quite a while. I had absolutely no idea what I was going to write or how I was going to deal with it, but essentially 
we didn't even know at the point exactly what the deadline was. It was going to be somewhere in March. But what the, 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 the reality moment was that we had to have the first draft done. Dear old Hardy Grant said at the time that we had to get the, uh, the first draft done pretty much by mid-December, which didn't happen. And the experience that both of us have with books and publishers is that this kind of little shadow game goes on <laughs> around around deadlines, but, you know, they are real in the end. Uh, we worked remotely through the whole thing. At no point were we in the same room as we were putting this book together. Thomas pretty much set up the outline and away we went. And we'd finished that draft pretty much by February and then there was some tinkering and some kind of hard slog and reappraisals and we were racing the clock uh, while at the same time watching what seemed to be a very slow process going on in Canberra because we were desperate to have the form of words settled on by by cabinet before that book hit the printing presses, if that's what you call them these days. And literally on, I think it was March 15 or 16, we were told the shutters were coming down at about two o'clock in the afternoon and late that morning, cabinet came good with the wording and there was that extraordinary, was that the day, Thomas, where you all stood around? The press conference. The, the, the press conference? The next morning was, that was the press the next conference, morning. yeah. Well, that was like our full stop, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's continued to ferment, you know. This is the story that keeps going. It's still in process. We're getting a flavour of the kind of debate, if one can call it that, that's taking place in the Parliament as they move to the final vote on what the form of words will be, turn it into legislation, and then we sprint to the finish line, which is probably around October. Thomas, can I ask you, with your six years since Uluru Statement 2017 and leading up to it, just give us, um, to start going into the content and before we go into particular themes in the book, why the case for voting yes is a no-brainer to you? Yeah, well, it's a no-brainer because the uh, incredible injustice that our people have suffered for so long, that the results of that is the gap that we all know about, uh, almost 10 years difference in life expectancy for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, that proportionately we're the most incarcerated people on the planet, that you have all of these issues that, you know, in the Northern Territory, uh, almost all of the time, 100% of the youth in detention, youth as young as 10 years old, are Indigenous. And that that is not a matter of our what is in our DNA, it's not a matter of our culture, it is a matter of that history of injustice. And the trauma is carried from colonisation, the genocide, the dispossession, and the failed policies and harmful laws for such a, a long period of time. That is, is just so important to understand when we consider this proposition that we're all going to have, a, have an opportunity to respond to later this year. It just makes complete sense that we should recognise over 60,000 years of continuous culture and heritage and that we should do something to fix the problem. The Uluru Statement nails it when it says that this is a structural problem. This is a torment of our powerlessness. The, the problem is not who we are as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it is a political and structural problem that we as the people of Australia can fix. And that is what we're going to do later this year. Kerry, uh, early in the book, um, you reflect on your learning as a kid at school, primary and secondary, and your relative ignorance um, of 
Aboriginal settlement, Aboriginal civilisation. Just take us quickly through your main recollections of how you came through journalism and to be here now of the important changes that have occurred in your... Like 99.9% of white or non-Indigenous Australians uh, of my generation, the generations before me, and at least one, if not two generations after me, I grew up uh, in a pall of ignorance uh, about Indigenous history, Indigenous culture, even Indigenous presence. This reflected what Bill Stanner, at the time probably the preeminent anthropologist in Australia, what he called in his ABC Boyer lectures in 1968, The Great Australian Silence, where he described the view from a window looking out on the Australian landscape, but the window had been placed in such a way that a very crucial and central part of that landscape was missing. And, and as a young journalist uh, in 1970, uh, I went to Alice Springs on a story that had absolutely nothing to do with any Indigenous issue, but, but what was in front of me every time I stepped onto a street or walked anywhere or went anywhere in Alice Springs was the rawest illustrations of the most fundamental and in ways brutal racism, which shocked me to my core. I came back there in 1975. It was the first time I had the opportunity. I was with Four Corners. I basically rang some people in Alice Springs to find out what was going on then and heard about this case, which was still in train, of a young Indigenous woman whose name I won't mention, but, um, uh, but she was brutally bashed and died within, I think, 48 hours. Six young Indigenous men, they were boys really still, were railroaded into prison awaiting trial for the murder on the basis of confessions that, as was proven ultimately in the court, they couldn't possibly have committed because a uniting church minister named Jim Downing, who had come from Redfern, where he'd worked with Indigenous people, to Alice Springs, and took the trouble to actually learn the Pitchin to Jarrah language and was able to see and then give compelling evidence in court that knowing that in the knowledge of their language and the concepts around their language that they could not possibly have made these confessions in English. They were released as a result of that story and the case. The Whitlam government announced a Royal Commission uh, into relations between police and Aboriginals in the Northern Territory. Five weeks later, the Whitlam government was sacked. Fraser government came in. The Royal Commission disappeared, never got to first base. Twelve years later, I was sitting in a committee room in the old Parliament House when Bob Hawke walked in there as Prime Minister and rather reluctantly announced the Royal Commission into black deaths in custody. Twelve completely wasted years around those same issues. The Royal Commission that followed over three or four years, whatever it was, it was very extensive. Pat Dodson was one of the commissioners. Jeff Eames, the young lawyer who had brought the case to my attention in the first place, who came from Melbourne, was counsel assisting and subsequently became a distinguished judge in this state. The thing about this and the relevance of this is that 338, I think, recommendations were made by that Royal Commission. And so many of those recommendations were never enacted. They were never acted in any kind of uniform way around the country. The black deaths are still occurring as we speak. And the point of it is that, that despite the landmark aspects of that Royal Commission, 
the failures are manifest and the failures are because Indigenous voices, Indigenous evidence, the Indigenous story of injustice was never taken seriously. I think you could say there's been 20 more years of waste of time, more than 20 years since that Royal Commission. And the Royal Commission report, what those recommendations are based on, the report is full of evidenced truth-telling. Evidenced truth-telling. But what is missing from truth-telling is the political influence that we require to get those recommendations implemented. The truth-telling needs a voice, and that's one of the reasons why the voice is so very important. Yeah. Following on from what you've just said, the truth has been a long time coming, a great shroud of silence around the least palatable aspects of our colonial history and the denial of Indigenous history, culture and occupation have severely diminished our national narrative. Until relatively recently, First Nations people have been rendered largely invisible without a voice, without a seat at the table. Do you want to just offer another little comment on that? It ties in well, with the Stanner quote. You know, I, I mean, if, if you haven't seen the Australian wars by another of the great Indigenous women leaders uh, who is a part of the campaign, Rachel Perkins, daughter of Charlie Perkins. That is a profoundly moving and shocking series that every adult Australian should see. And I'm just going to dwell on one small part of it as an illustration of the deliberate way in which Indigenous people were slaughtered over a very, very long time, including into the 20th century that the means of, of disguising and hiding and, and losing the evidence of the slaughters uh, had been refined to the extent that, and, and that there was a case in the Kimberley where people came back, and, and this, this only came to light after a great deal of forensic work, but fires, bonfires, were built with massive amounts of timber to burn the evidence to the point where those people who had been slaughtered were reduced to ash and tiny fragments of bone. And, and am I trying to shock you? Not shock you, but force, uh, and, and I probably don't have to do it to you, but I want you to carry this stuff wherever you possibly can, as we're all trying to do just to actually reflect on what that means about the deliberate way in which Indigenous people were being removed from the face of their country. And, and so to go from there to what we're about through this referendum now, just very briefly, this is a very simple proposition. It is the simplest of propositions. It is about fairness. It is about justice. It is about washing away some of what was done. Not washing away what was done, but to correct, to take the most marginalised group of people in this country who had custodianship of it for more than 60,000 years to, through this voice to Parliament, elevate with policies that are, at least to some extent, directed from Indigenous communities reflecting their wisdom and their knowledge which the largely white bureaucrats and largely white politicians have so often misdirected. I don't want to wipe away the good things that have been done, and there have been good things, but they have been incremental. And they have gone up in one point in history and back in another, 
as we change governments and as bureaucrats change. Marcia Langton, just very quickly, Marcia Langton, part of the terrific evidence that she gave on the first day of the joint parliamentary committee hearings in Canberra that Thomas and I were sitting through, where Marcia described this uniform view that came from meeting after meeting after meeting, 110 meetings they had around the country as the second stage of this process when they were doing the co-design and what the voice might look like, where people in these communities would talk about the fly-in, fly-out bureaucrats who would arrive, take copious notes, make promises, climb back on their planes, either never to be heard from again or then write policies which did not reflect the advice that they were being given and failed. Thomas, um, can I ask you, it's a modest proposal. It's not a dangerous and radical proposal, The Voice. It's modest. There's nothing to be afraid of. Can you just take us through, though, a couple of the design principles that, that are outlined in your book? Yeah, so it's important for you to, to know when the book contains these design principles that these design principles give some shape to the voice. Simple things, really, there being governance and transparency to the voice, that the voice would be independent of government, that the voice would be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people chosen from their communities according to their community's wishes, that it won't have a right to veto. You know, so it just outlines A through to H some basic principles about how the voice will be shaped, the model, and with some extra dot points to give even more detail. So this question about detail that has been used to try and confuse Australians can be combated with that. But the simplest way to respond to it is that this is simply recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first peoples in the way that Indigenous peoples themselves have proposed in that process that I spoke of earlier that led to the making of the Uluru Statement from the heart. And that way of recognition is to simply give us a say about the decisions that are made about us. That's it. It's recognition and to say about decisions that are made about us. So in the book, we wanted to include some practical examples of how when Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have a say about decisions, then you get the best possible results. And so Marcia and Fiona Stanley sent us some dot points and we turned it into a chapter uh, because it was so, it was so well done. Uh, and one of those examples was COVID you know, a rare opportunity. Our people had some control over the measures taken over COVID, you know, to keep COVID out of our communities and to respond to that threat. As said, it was um, one of the best results in, in the world. Yet they were also extraordinarily vulnerable, in yeah. many ways yes. more vulnerable yeah. than most other Australians. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, in fact, when COVID hit and there was a, a fear and anxiety about it if it took hold in remote communities, and I felt that fear and then realised in talking with Fiona that the fear never materialised and then she gave me the answer to it. I think there was scarcely a death. Rates of infection were really low. Yeah, and other examples are in there, like, uh, and, and a lot of you would know of these, the Koori Courts, you know, and how that helps with uh, justice, birthing on country programs that are in some places, uh, you know, and you get much, much better results. The evidence is there. We've heard a lot of the no case. Um, they sort of stole a march on the Yes campaign from about July last year through to February this year. We've heard a, a lot of the no case. With as much civility and respect as you can muster, I just wanted to bowl up some of the main components of it because you deal with them beautifully in the book. I am reminded, I've read Nikki Savo in The Age today and realised that it was about six weeks ago that she wrote a piece in The Age 
which a piercing um, sentence where she said, it is possible to mount a no case to the voice without being racist. But then she went on to say, but understand that all racists will vote no. And I think that's an interesting angle to take. Um, Including some who don't realise they are. Yeah. So let's run through some of the much publicised one because people here need to know that I think these are dealt with beautifully in the book. Um, it's going to be divisive. It's a unifying proposal, not divisive. This is about including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia's founding document, something that should have happened in 1901 when Federation occurred. I don't think many Australians would disagree that if we were to remake the Constitution today, have constitutional conventions that Indigenous people should be part of those discussions, that we are a part of the fabric of this nation and we are the heart of the nation, which is why I called the first book Finding the Heart of the Nation. What about our system of democratic governance being tied up interminably with High Court challenges, Gary? Well, again, on that first day of the parliamentary sittings uh, of, the, of that Joint uh, Committee of Inquiry, that was extensively dealt with. There were two lawyers who spoke for the no case, one of whom was not arguing that there was a flaw in the case of Indigenous people being able to access executive government. He was really arguing, politically, it would be wise not to, not to have that as a part of it, because that way you might get more Conservative voters. So he was trying to make a political argument rather than an argument based in any threat from the proposition. But then came a former Chief Justice of the High Court, Robert French, another highly respected former Justice of the High Court, Kenneth Hayne, two preeminent Australian constitutional law academics in George Williams and Anne Toomey, and one of the leading silks at the High Court bar, Brett Walker. Brett Walker all of whom, yes, at times they were talking in legal terminology, at other times they were talking in the plainest of ways, but the combination of the two all said the same thing. It's crap. Essentially, it is a fallacious argument. It's not going to happen. So what was being painted by no campaigners, the Indigenous voice might seek to make specious representations to Cabinet on issues like, as Thomas has said one or two times, parking fines, or where you park your submarines, or, you know, whatever, to do with anything across the board, and, and then say they weren't listened to and they'd go to the High Court and argue it, and the High Court would be clogged up forever. And that was what those five eminent lawyers all had to say, it is rubbish, it will not happen. And anyway, as Kenneth Haynes said, the courts are another fundamental pillar of our democracy. Another fundamental pillar of our democracy under the rule of law. So if a case goes to the High Court and is dealt with, what is the problem? So uh, my great disappointment was that that was not really widely or fully reported the next day. Mm. And that's a part of the problem with this whole referendum mm. so far. I think that journalists have got to sharpen their pens at the risk of sounding dated. Yeah. I think people in the media might also want to cast their mind back to when the Bringing Them Home report came out, um, the forcible removal of children. There were many players on the right in this country, white blokes, who 
were hell-bent on saying that that was a complete fabrication, that those stories were fabricated. So we've got to go back to the Keith Windshuttle era and others, that they tried to discredit that entire truth-telling. And what you can now say, Mary, is that that attempt to discredit has failed mm. manifestly, and that the historians that those people tried to pillory and discredit now stand tall because the weight of evidence just keeps growing and growing and growing, and it is irrefutable. Yeah. The, the fear-mongering is similar to what happened when Mabo happened and the, the native title negotiations and everything, and the, sky the was same thing. Fall in there. None well, of they were those going to take suburban backyards. Yeah. Yeah. And that came from Victoria. That's, that's the that same fear-mongering we're seeing now. Yeah. And WIC, when the WIC judgment came down, uh, pastoralists were going to lose their farms. Yep. Um, what about the argument, Thomas, um, I mean, I think you've dealt with the detail issue, um, but what about the argument, some have put former politicians, that it's only 4% of the population, so why should 4% of the population get some preferential treatment? 60,000 years or more. <laughs> um, yeah. That, that we have this very real gap in life expectancy and all those other things, I mean, come on. Of course, you know, of course we deserve a voice and we deserve recognition. Okay, but you've got 11 Indigenous representatives. That's another argument that's being used. Those representatives, though, I've got great respect for most of them. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, like, uh, they represent electorates. And their electorates are mostly non-Indigenous. And they also represent political parties. And they're necessarily loyal to those political parties if they want to make their way um, up in the world in, in politics. They don't speak for Indigenous people because they're not being held to account by their communities. Uh, and that is a really important thing to consider here. Uh, the voice is something that's completely different. The voice is chosen by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, people that come from the communities, that live and breathe our issues every day, held to account by our communities, a vastly different thing from politicians. And our people are not looking to be politicians. We want to have representatives without having to go, you know, to a political party and, and to be politicians. This is a very different thing. And another part of that is that uh, there is no sense of permanence politicians in most seats, other than those that are, have high margins as a cushion, there's no guarantee that in the next parliament there'll be 11 uh, Indigenous politicians. There could be 12 or there could be five. So there's no permanence about it. There's no guarantees with that. Kerry, what about, I've, I've heard the argument made um, by different commentators and, and I've been, I must admit, no offence to lawyers possibly in the audience, but I've been a little bit dispirited by the amount of prevarication on the part of a lot of legally trained people um, who seem to um, be concerned about equality under the law and that if Indigenous people will be, have more equality than others. Well, I mean, I think it's a bit silly in a lot of respects because as a woman, I actually don't have equality under the law yet. But, you know, maybe that'll come down the track. But what do you think of that argument that, you know, this is going to elevate Indigenous Australians or, or uh, to, to re-racialise Australia, as Peter Dutton said, or to divide the nation, or to have two countries. Well, Julian Leeser, who we now know perhaps better than we did a little while ago, who was until very recently Peter Dutton's spokesperson on Indigenous affairs in his shadow cabinet, uh, when Peter Dutton announced 
uh, that without much consultation within his party, it came as a surprise to many, announced that, uh, that the Liberal opposition would campaign for the no case and that all shadow cabinet members would essentially have to support the no case. Now, Julian Lisa, as we know, uh, resigned on principle. He's sitting on the back bench of the Liberal opposition. And when he spoke yesterday, as the very recent shadow spokesman for Indigenous Affairs, he says in the plainest of language that an Indigenous voice enshrined in the Constitution will see the economic advancement and the social advancement will see so many of these entrenched problems dealt with and there will not be two Australias. There will not be two Australias. Now, until two blinks of an eyelid, this guy was sitting at the same table as Peter Dutton as his party's representative on Indigenous policy. I don't think we need to say any more. No, you don't. Um, I've been carrying around in my file some of the plainly silly suggestions that um, are put forward and I, I won't name this person, he's a business writer in an Australian publication, and he was fulminating, and this part was so funny that I actually doubled up laughing. He said, if there's a voice, the corporate sector and others wishing to influence government will need to double their lobbying capacity because they will need I to lobby... I don't think that's possible, Mary. They will need to lobby not just the government departments and politicians, but the voice body as well. So they're going to have to spend more money on consultants. That gets the plainly silly suggestion award, I think. I've spent decades observing the way power functions in this country. And there are people in this room who would remember starkly the nine-month period that it took for Labor, the Labor-Hawke government uh, to determine the media ownership policies for Australia into the future. This was Paul Keating's Princes of Prince and Queens of the Screens. And John Button, the late John Button, the late great John Button, commented a little while later that behind Hawke at that cabinet table, like Banco's ghost, stood two men, Kerry Packer and Rupert Murdoch. And, and a Rupert Murdoch can lift the phone to a Prime Minister and get through. And the weight of money behind any number of industries in this country and in the Western world, in the democratic world, the weight of money speaks. And if you compare that with what we're talking about as an Indigenous voice to Parliament, it is laughable to try to even put them on an equal footing and yet the power of what that voice can come to mean is profound. So, Thomas, spell out what you think. How do people hear? How do we roll up our sleeves the next five months? Well, this is why the book was boiling away for a while. I realised pretty early in the campaign that you just can't take it for granted that people understand how to advocate for something. And especially when it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander matters because people feel uncomfortable uh, talking about these things. During COVID, I trained, uh, I think, uh, close to a thousand union members through the ACTU because, you know, I was stuck at home. And so I just did uh, these sessions with people. And so the book is a continuation of this, really. People need to understand how much hard work we did to create this opportunity in the first place, right? Uh, all of the struggle from our elders and our ancestors, the hard work that we did to, to reach a consensus with the Uluru Statement from the Heart, 
not taking no for an answer from uh, Turnbull and then Morrison and continuing to campaign over the last six years to bring this opportunity here. And what we need people to do is do the same hard work that we did as Indigenous people to create this opportunity. We have brought us to this point and you need to pick up the baton and take it and hand it on to other Australians now and help them understand how to vote yes. And so that's the purpose of that chapter in the book. Um, it's quite brief, it just gives some guidance on conversations. There's also QR codes in that chapter to go to Together Yes, to, to register to join that part of our campaign and to go to the Yes 23 website and volunteer. Part of what I think the book will deliver is that it's terribly important when, when people are going to actually front up, yes, of course, sometimes to people they know very well, but, but often, hopefully, they'll be talking to people that they don't necessarily know terribly well. And to feel the confidence to be able to, to lay it all out there is incredibly important. And they will get this from, their, from the book. What I learned going around in that last election campaign of the way the Teals function based basically on the Indi model with the kitchen table conversations, do not underestimate the scope and the power and the possibilities with those kitchen table conversations. Cathy McGowan was, was challenging people to, to contact 50 other people to explain to them why their vote was going to be important in that election. Now, I think 50 is a bit daunting. 10 is not too bad. And if you just think about, you know, somewhere between 250 and 300 people here tonight, we've been doing audiences like this in the last few days. If each of you uh, got to 10 people, and of those 10 people, six were not outright yeses, and at least half of those six changed to a yes, and then hopefully some of them go on to address others. I mean, the cascading effect of this potentially is fantastic. The referendum, to me, is the most powerful expression of democracy we can have. It's a straight yes or no, you know. It's a really straightforward, simple, it's an issue, and we get to say yes or no on it. Kerry's right with Indi, the power of conversation. When Voices for Indi started in 2012, they didn't think that they could anywhere near win that seat. It was all about making it marginal, because there was a 9% swing required. I worked with them for six months in rolling out the process across the electorate, uh, and there's no doubt that that conversational process of bringing people together, of listening to people, hearing them, and taking account of their concerns, freed up, freed up a lot of people in that electorate, mm. and that was one of the reasons why they actually shaved a 9% margin and won the seat in the end. They certainly didn't think they would at the beginning, but it was the ability of people to connect with one another, talk to one another, and, and not see yourself as being locked into parties even. I'm going to thank people for the event, to all of you for coming tonight, especially to Thomas uh, and Kerry, who have been tirelessly going around the country helping with this important book, to Hardy Grant for picking it up and publishing it, accommodating the timeline, uh, which was seemed impossible in a way. I know. You know, I spoke with Thomas in January and he said, do you think May's going to be too late? Um, so, not too late. Perfect timing, actually. Readings, uh, reading staff, Nico and Nelson, uh, for putting the event on. Our videographers, Greg and Stu, um, for coming here tonight to help us create this webinar. The All Nations staff, uh, Ray and Ian. 
So we haven't got time tonight for Q&A because we got off to a late start and the night's getting on. But what I'd like to do now is offer, and I'm sure he's going to take up the offer, of Thomas Mayo to actually recite you the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Thank you. Uh, before I do that, let's get out there and do the work to win this, eh? All of us. We gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands, and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law and time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or Mother Nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached thereto and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished, and it coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? that a people's possessed a land for 60 millennia and this sacred link should disappear from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not and innately criminal people. Our children are alien from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish, they will walk in two worlds, and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Thank you.
The Voice to Parliament Handbook, now quickly selling at its second printing mere weeks after release, is available from all reading stores and at our website, where you'll find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of the land and pay earnest respects to elders past, present and those to come. Thank you.